Our gospel reading for this morning comes from John chapter 20. When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the religious authorities, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. (laughs) Sorry. The disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain any, they are retained. But Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger in the mark of the nails and my hand in his side, I will not believe. A week later, the disciples were again in the house, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the chosen one of God, and that through believing you may have life in Jesus' name. Please be seated. In college, I had the incredible opportunity to spend four months living and studying in Jerusalem. My community there was primarily made up of international students from around the world from a variety of faith backgrounds. Many of my friends were Jewish, and the context in which we were living was heavily influenced by the Jewish ritual calendar. In solidarity with my friends, and as something of an experiment, I decided to fast for Yom Kippur. Now, if you aren't familiar, the Yom Kippur fast lasts 26 hours, so it's a full day with a cushion on each end, from sundown to sundown. This was a new experience for me, and I was learning from my friends, but I wasn't really able to anticipate how it would make me feel. Because Yom Kippur is one of the most sacred days of the Jewish year, most of the city was quiet. There were no cars on the roads, no public transit running, no stores open in the Jewish neighborhoods, and very few people out and about. Most Jewish people were already at synagogue for the day by the time I left my apartment that morning. So, not really thinking about the consequences of having had nothing to eat or drink since the night before, I rode my bike down the mountain from my building, wandered around the empty streets, got disoriented because the city looked so different from what I was used to, got yelled at for being a woman wearing shorts and accidentally riding a bike into an Orthodox neighborhood, and eventually found my way to what is called the Garden Tomb, which some people believe to be the site of Jesus' resurrection. Now, historically, this probably isn't the case, but it is a beautiful garden, and there's a cave cut into the rock face that makes up one of its boundaries. 
I explored the garden, read the various plaques that tell the story of the crucifixion and resurrection, and ended up sitting in the tomb, partially resting from the exhaustion of riding my bike in the sun without having eaten, and partially contemplating the fact that, whether literally true or not, I could be sitting right where Mary and the other disciples had first learned about the resurrection. Both the reading in Acts and the gospel reading from John this morning are snapshots in the larger story about being witnesses to the resurrection. They're snapshots at different stages in an ongoing process of formation. The John reading is the very beginning of the journey. The disciples are scared, they're confused, they're hiding. They're not sure how to react to any of the things that have been happening. By the time the Acts reading rolls around, they've grown bolder. They're out getting arrested for saying and doing things that upset the imperial power structure. That's a pretty dramatic change. It's not a change that happens overnight, and it's not a change that happens by sitting around talking. It's something that happens through experience. I didn't physically experience the resurrection at the garden tomb, but I did have an embodied experience that was radically different from my everyday. The stillness and quiet of the holiday atmosphere, the pangs of hunger, the dehydration, and the exhausting heat all added up to a bodily, sensory experience that I can still feel, physically feel, whenever I think about it. I imagine that embodied experiences like these were a critical part of the disciples' growth, from scared and hiding to standing defiantly in front of a legal counsel. And I get that impression not only from my experience, but also because these two encounters between Jesus and the disciples that we read about in the gospel, which happened soon after the resurrection, are full of physical interaction. The disciples are huddled together. Jesus appears and stands in their huddle, speaks words of peace, and before they can even ask, shows them the scars that were left by the violence of just a few days earlier. In fact, they're fresh enough that they can hardly be called scars yet. They're really open wounds, fleshy and moist and red. Jesus knows the disciples need this physical evidence and offers it freely. Jesus probably smells, too like a combination of death and embalming perfume. It is a moment that engages all of their senses, and it pushes them to shift quickly from fear to joy. It is the physical reality of Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, and the disciples' physical experience of it that forms them as witnesses. And then, Upon telling them that they will be sent to be witnesses outside of that locked room, Jesus breathes on them. They receive the Spirit by means of Jesus' warm, misty breath. This resurrected body and the bodies of the disciples are intimately intertwined with the Spirit. Just like the breath of life in Genesis God's exhalation that became the first inhalation for human lungs, 
Jesus' breath inspires a new creation, the creation that would eventually become the church. There's a tendency to criticize Thomas for asking for these physical signs, but he only wants what the others have already received without having having had to ask for it. He's been told about their physical, embodied experience with Jesus and craves it for himself. And who can blame him? Physical experience informs everything we do. We trust our bodies to tell us that we're hungry, that we're tired, that we're anxious. Our bodies, if we allow ourselves to attend to them well, are our first and best source of information about what's going on within us and around us. So when Thomas does get the opportunity to hear and see and touch Jesus, he shouts for joy. The text even tells us that these things, these specific things about these physical embodied experiences were written for those of us who can't share that physical experience. Because someone else's embodied experience, while not as powerful as our own, is at least better than something so intellectual that our bodies can't imagine the sensation. Jesus' words to Thomas set this up too. Jesus knows that there will be many more people down the generations, people just like us, who can't experience Jesus' resurrected body and breath. And Jesus explains that trusting in the resurrection will be even harder for us than it was for Jesus' friends. That sensory experiences of God will be less accessible to us. But they're not inaccessible. I would say in my embodied experience at the garden tomb, I did have a sensory experience of God. I didn't touch Jesus' scars, I didn't feel the breath of the Spirit, but I was aware of the relationships between my body and my mind and the world around me in ways I often am not. Experiences like these are the reasons Christians do things like walk labyrinths and take pilgrimages. It's part of what makes rituals like baptism and foot washing and imposition of ashes so powerful. Our society as a whole tends to separate body and mind and to think that faith is something separate from physicality. And we as Lutherans don't often put an emphasis on personal bodily experiences of God, which just means that it's an area where we can learn from other Christian traditions. In charismatic communities, for instance, bodily experiences are a common part of worship, laying hands on each other, dancing, crying, And our Catholic and Orthodox siblings often use incense and prostrations in their worship. In our worship, we're mostly seeing and hearing. When we pass the peace, we may touch each other briefly. We taste the communion elements. We sit and stand for various parts of the liturgy. But our bodies are only so engaged, and many of us are probably so accustomed to our physical experiences in worship that we aren't mindful of them anymore, which isn't bad or wrong, but it might lead us to ask ourselves, what do we make of the physicality in these accounts of the resurrection? 
What do we make of a God who chooses to be born in a human body? To be a baby, learning to eat and babble and make fists. To go through the awkwardness and discomfort of puberty. To touch people, to eat with both friends and enemies, to use spit to make mud when someone asks for healing. And then not only to die, but to be murdered. Stripped naked, stabbed, and suffocated. And then, after walking out of that cold, dark tomb, fumbling with the grave cloths, the evidence of this God's triumph are the scars left from that death. Thinking about Jesus' body in this way reminds me of the poetry of Maya Angelou. You may write me down in history with your bitter, twisted lies. You may trod me in the very dirt. But still, like dust, I'll rise. When Peter says the God of our ancestors raised up Jesus, this is what he means. Humans throughout the centuries have managed to write Jesus down in history with their bitter, twisted lies, but that cannot keep Jesus from rising, from standing up, shaking off the dirt, and breathing peace on anyone who needs it. For the disciples, this meant putting their own bodies on the line to be witnesses, people who actively share their experiences, because the work of the Spirit can't be limited. Once they've received this breathy spirit, they go out and do her work. The text from Acts 5 tells of a time after the ascension, after Jesus' body has left this earth. The disciples' bodies have become Christ's body. And for us, living after the ascension, us who are left without even the opportunity that Thomas had to put our fingers into those scars, our bodies are now that body. All our bodies, queer bodies, fat bodies, disabled bodies, brown and black bodies, infant and elderly bodies, your body. When your body is ch serving at Chosen 300, you are Christ's body. When your body is weeding the community garden, you are Christ's body. When your body is meandering through the flea market, you are Christ's body. But also, when your body is resting, when your body is breathing in crisp morning air, when your body is weeping, you are Christ's body. Individually and collectively, we are Christ's body, and in different ways and at different times, we embody the resurrection for each other. Just like the disciples, when they were at their most insecure and uncomfortable, we greet one another peace be with you. We, the members of Christ's body, share that same peace with the same authority, the same confidence, the same calm that Jesus had upon appearing in that locked room. Jesus greets Thomas with that peace before he can apologize or defend himself for being skeptical, because really there was never any reason for either. Jesus meets Thomas where he is, and Jesus meets us where we are, including in our most profound doubt and pain, offers peace, and invites us to be one body, one 
beautiful, diverse, scarred body. Amen.